0: I have one request. If I'm ever asked to do the announcement video, please do not put me with Brian Rucker. (laughs) That's just a general for whoever out there. Uh, I want to welcome everybody. Welcome our Fellowship Center uh, audience as well as our live stream, uh, including my better half, uh, Lisa from Alabama. Love you, babe. Uh, We are excited uh, to be here today. And I want to add, it's already been mentioned a couple of times about Marriage Refresh, because I know there's a few spots left, but uh, you guys, if you want a real blessing, uh, you need to come up to Lake DeGray. One thing is, we haven't been able to meet there uh, in the last couple of years because of uh, this pandemic, so we're excited to get back to our uh, old place that we've been going to for over 20 years. And uh, what a dream and a vision uh, by Joe Neal that still goes on today under new leadership. And so we're very blessed by that. So I want to encourage you to sign up. Uh, some of you uh, in our live stream audience may want to come. We have a lot of folks that come from around the country, uh, and we're always blessed by that. We've got uh, our scripture here this morning is Jonah Barnett. Jonah, if you'd come up, says here that Jonah has a birthday coming up soon. He's 10. You know, when you're 10, you're always looking forward to the birthdays. I just had one last week, Jonah, and, you know, I kind of put those behind me. But you're excited because your new birthday, and it says here that you love to fish, which I find ironic because your name is Jonah who was swallowed by a fish. (laughs) Pretty awesome, right? All right, ready to share a verse? I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say, and that there will be no divisions among you, but that you will be perfectly united in mind and thought. Thank you, gentlemen. I appreciate it. Yeah, a little round of applause for Jonah. <clears throat> Jonah, may you continue to catch the fish and them not catch you. Uh, what a blessing uh, to start a new study. Preachers love new studies. Uh, because we get a lot of good background work, and uh, today we're starting a new study and we're we're calling the letters to Corinth because we're going to study both first and second corinthians and Since Mike and I have had the the pleasure of being able to bring the word to you the last couple of years uh, we've this is the first time we've really gotten uh, able to get deeply into one of the epistles, it was to one of the churches that had a lot of issues, and those are always a good a challenge, but at the same time they're a great blessing. Because to me, nothing speaks more to our current conflict with the evil one, especially as a church and a body, a call out assembly, uh, than studying some of these passages. So I'm super excited about today. I'll give you just a little bit of background on the city. Last week, we looked a little bit at Acts 18. So that's where you get a little flavor and background for what Paul went through whenever he went to Corinth on one of his missionary journeys and started the church there. It was interesting because it was a thriving city, about 400,000 people. It had been decimated uh, by the Romans in 146 B.C. It just was in ruins after they burned it to the ground for about 100 years. And good old Julius Caesar decided to rebuild it in 46 B.C. And he built quite the city. Uh, There's still ruins there to this day that you can go and look at if you go to Corinth. We were in Greece and... After all the Bible study that I do, it's kind of weird when you're driving on an interstate and you see a sign that says Corinth, you know, so many kilometers to the right. Because we've read about this ancient city and studied it so intently. They had, um obviously, it had some issues uh, in the city, in this big thriving city. They had uh, a temple there, uh, which was the temple to Venus, or also Aphrodite, as she's known. And there were 1,000 priestesses also known as prostitutes, uh, because they had the uh, unseemly marriage of their religion uh, with sexual immorality. So obviously this is going to cause a lot of problems with the church that starts there, people that are called out. Now, it's interesting because you got all this going on on the Gentile side, but then there's always the most religious people in the city of Corinth were the Jewish presence that was there. So you had a synagogue and you had these Jewish leaders And so when Paul comes in, the first thing he does is go, because they have a lot more in common, right? They have the same background because Paul's a Jew. So he goes in and he first tries to convince them about this man named Jesus. And he shares his testimony with them about how he was struck down on that road to Damascus. And some people listen. And some people came to Christ. Most rejected. Because they were not looking for Jesus. In fact, it got so tense that... Paul finally left the synagogue and said, I'm through with you people. I'm going to the Gentiles. And he did. And some of them came on board. For the most part, they were indifferent. They saw this as some sect of the Jews. But for those who had a heart and who had ears willing to listen, the church at Corinth began. I want to read these first few verses because, man, what a beginning uh, to this verse. Paul writes these in around 50, late 50s A.D., And he's in Ephesus when he writes these words. He says, Paul, verse 1, chapter 1, called to be an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. That's that testimony on that road, right? That's how he was called. And our brother Sosthenes, who we read about him back in Acts 18. By the way, he took a good beating uh, for his faith, which many of these early brothers and sisters did. Verse 2, to the church of God in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, together with all those everywhere who call on the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. Grace and peace to you from God, our father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, those of us that have read a lot in first Corinthians, we know this church had a lot of problems. And And I described some of the reasons why the culture they came from caused a lot of issues for this church. They had a lot of infighting, division, we'll talk about later. They were imperfect. But I got news for you, folks. We're all imperfect. Every church is imperfect. No church has all the answers. No church has everything right. And so that was the same thing with this church. And I love the way he starts it. Because knowing the things he's going to have to try to challenge them on, he's going to use some challenging language. He starts out by telling who they are, a sanctified and holy people. The Greek word is hagios, set apart, legit, acceptable, sacred, purified from sin. Now, if I put that on your resume, would that make you feel good? I love being purified from sin, set apart and holy. And how did they get this way? Because they were such good people. Because they were such good law keepers. Because they came from a good background and a good family. No. He said they got this way by calling on the name of Christ Jesus. That sounds doable to me. What about you? To call on no other name but Jesus? And that can set me apart and make me holy and sacred and legit? Paul would say in Romans chapter 10 and verse 8, the word is near you. It is in your mouth and it is in your heart. That is the message concerning faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. And we see it day in and day out, do we not? Week in and week out. People stand behind me and say, Jesus is Lord. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be Saved. No ifs, ands, or buts. No additions or takeaway. The only name by which we may be saved is Jesus. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. That's a mouthful. I don't know about you, but... I've done things I am not proud of. But I don't live in shame. You know why? Because I called on the name of Jesus. Not only does his sacrifice take away my sin, but it can take away the shame of my sin. That's heavy and liberating. When I watch Lisa stand before audiences, and by the way, I mentioned this on Christmas Eve. She is getting the opportunity to speak at the National Right to Life March in Washington, D.C. Over a million people will get to hear that. Over a million. I said, babe, I've been preaching a long time, but I never got to speak to a million people. Praise the Lord. But you know why she's getting that opportunity? Because of all the times across the country we've stood before an audience. And talked about abortion and her talking about having one and always regretting the stamping out of generations of lives but not living in shame because of Jesus Christ. That's what he did for us, that's what he continues to do for us. There is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. No other name under heaven. What did they receive from being this way? According to this text in the opening of first Corinthians, they received two things. They received grace and peace. You see, grace. I don't deserve it. I can't earn it. It's totally perfection in Christ. It's never ending and it's overwhelming. It is his gift to us. And he says that gift was given to the Corinthian church. And you know what happens when you embrace grace at that level? You get the second thing. You get peace. Peace of mind. Peace in your heart. Peace that knows no matter what's going on, no matter how difficult things are. I am in the grace of God. You know why we've responded differently as a people to a pandemic than many other of our fellow countrymen? Because of grace and peace. We don't have to live in fear of anything, including death. Why? Because of grace and peace. Because we have called on the name of Jesus. Therefore, we are saved. He would go on to say in verse 4... I always thank my God for you because of his grace given you in Christ Jesus. So now he's going to tell them about some of the things that grace now gives us. They're gifts that come as a result. For in him you have been enriched in every way. So you see the first two you get are gratitude. He said, I always thank God for you. Living a life of gratitude. Our booking agent lives in north of Nashville. And her name is Gloria. I call her Gloria the Glorifier. She sent out an email recently to all those who were, you know, in their business. And I had, I, did, I had not heard this before, but her house was destroyed by the tornadoes that went through last month. And she was describing the terrified, I'm terrified of tornadoes, just so you know. Hurricanes, ah, we'll get out of here. Earthquakes, move. Tornadoes, what are you going to do? You're in there. They're there, and it's you versus the tornado. I'm, I don't like tornadoes. So when she's describing this ordeal, this terror to me, I mean, I'm just sitting there totally engrossed in this email. And she's talking about how she feels the entire house lift off the foundation. Now, I don't know about you. There's not a lot of places I feel safe. When I'm at my house, I feel pretty safe. Unless it's lifting off the ground. And she and her husband are standing and looking at each other across the room in a door frame with their hands pushed, knowing this is probably the safest place we got, but it doesn't feel very safe. And both are praying to God. Spare us, but we're ready, which I love that. That house goes up, moves about 10 foot off the foundation and goes back down again. In that process, of course, it jammed every door. So they're going now, there's a gas leak, and they can hear it and smell it. So they're trying to get out of their own house, and they're trapped. And they found one broken window, and they managed to get themselves and their pooch out the window. And she says, the next day in the light of day, of course, it's pouring down rain when they go out, and they're outside, and they can tell there's destruction, but it's dark. And the next day, of course, when the light shines, you realize how bad it really is. And I love what she said. She said, I'm so thankful to God for that broken window that allowed us to escape. If they'd gone out either door, they would have been injured because of all the debris. You see, sometimes we look at the doorway we think is the way to go. And God says, no, I got a broken window right over here. Now, that's an attitude of gratitude. Most of us would say, what a terrible thing. You just lived through this terrible crisis and this tornado. But she says, thank God for a broken window. Because it provided a path to safety. That's what he's talking about here. The way to live. And he says, when you live that way, you will be enriched. Now, in our culture, when we hear anything that includes the word rich in it, we typically think of possessions, right? Riches. But these, this enrichment that you get from God is so much more powerful. Remember the story of Matthew 19 when the rich young ruler was there and, man, he said he was a good guy. He was a law keeper. He was someone that other people looked up to. And he said, I'm still lacking something. What do I need to be perfect? And Jesus said, sell, give, and follow me. Only one name. We can be saved. Only one way to be truly enriched. That's in Christ. I love Paul's description of himself in Second Corinthians 6 verse 10. He said, I am sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. I'm poor, yet making many rich. And he doesn't mean money. I have nothing, and yet I possess everything. Don't you love that? I mean, you look around, we're a pretty ragtag group here in West Monroe. We don't have a lot. But we possess everything. You know why? Because we know the name. And we call on it. Because we know the broken windows that lead us to salvation. Because you live in gratitude. You can look at this life in two ways. Always what you don't have or how bad things are or how grateful you are for what God gives you. Even in the struggle, even in the illness, even in the difficulty, especially during those times. Some of the greatest people I know are ones who are struggling the mightiest because they give glory to God. That's what I want to be when I grow up. He says you're enriched by speech and knowledge. In confirmation in who Christ is by his testimony. You have spiritual gifts. You have an eagerness to use them. You stand firm and you stand blameless until the day of judgment. All this, this church possessed. And we know they had a lot of problems. And so do we. And then the last two, and we sang about this morning here in the acapella service, we have the faithfulness of the Father and we have fellowship with the Son. And you you know how both of those are given to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's how we know how faithful God is. And that's how we know that Jesus, like he told the disciples in John 14 through 16, he would never leave us. He would always be there. Through his spirit. Wow. I mean, I just I really want to end the sermon here because it's so good. You know, pretty, pretty good. We'll do just as I am, maybe sing kumbaya, love one another, go home feeling good. Unfortunately, this church was challenged. And so are we. Because imagine having all that that I just mentioned, all those blessings, all that realization. And still not loving your brother or your sister. Still following your human desires. He says in verse 10, and this is really the theme in most of Corinthians, in my opinion, that there's a challenge to being unified. He says in verse 10, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree with one another in what you say and that there be no divisions among you, but that you may be perfectly united in mind and thought. Now, I've already said we're imperfect. So how could we possibly be perfectly united? It's only going to be through Jesus. When I stand in front of a couple and I talk to them about the unity of being a husband and a wife, I always mention that there's no way they can do this on their own. They're too different. They come from different backgrounds. You're bringing in all this stuff together. So if it's up to you, it'll never be as unified as it should be. But when Jesus gets involved... You can find perfect unity in imperfect people. And that's the answer, of course, for them. My brothers and sisters, verse 10, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. Another says, I follow Cephas, Peter. And here's what's bad. Another says, I follow Christ. You see, they were doing just what they had always seen done. Because people in this city, they would say, well, who do you follow? Well, I follow this God and I follow that God. Well, I'm going down to the temple of Venus. I'm going to follow them. So the church was taking on those same practices. And Paul said, no, no, no. Verse 13, is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Don't say you follow me. This isn't the church of Paul. Paul. All I did was get struck down on a road. Were you baptized in the name of Paul? God forbid. I thank God that I did not baptize any of you except Crispus and Gaius, two of the early leaders. So no one can say that you were baptized in my name. He doesn't want that. And, you know, this happened all throughout Acts. People wanted to worship Paul, and he said, No, 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 no. I'm not worthy of any worship. Then he gives us a parenthetical thought in verse 16. He says, Well, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't remember if I baptized anybody else. I love it. It's just like a little thought, like we would say, right? Oh, yeah, there's them. What's his point? It's not us, the individual. It's who we serve. It's the only one that can save us. So you see what happens. They get distracted. You take your eyes off of Jesus. You're distracted. Now that divisions come in, because when you're distracted, you start saying, well, I don't know. I don't like everything that guy says, but I seem to like what this guy says. And then after these divisions, now we got disunity. We're having quarrels and fights. My guy's better. And then we start to deify men who are not Jesus. And now we got a world of hurt. Because what that's doing is that's bringing now that doubt into our conversion of Jesus. Now you say, could that ever happen today? Happens all the time. Some demigod who's very talented self-proclaims that he'll lead you to the promised land. People fall in behind. Man, this guy is great. He's challenging me. He loves me and listen to him. And all of a sudden we find out having an affair with the church secretary. Just like everybody else, a sinner. And so then they fall apart. They lose their faith. He says in verse 17, a key verse, for Christ did not send me to baptize, meaning to create my own following. But to preach the gospel, not with words of human wisdom, lest the cross be emptied of its power. That's a powerful statement. I told Mike this week when I was studying, I cringed when I read that verse. I look back on my own life as a young minister, all the seminars that I used to go to and every way to try to carefully craft the gospel message so I could be gospel salesman of the year. I mean, I didn't look at it that way then, but looking back, I realized the power's in the cross, in Jesus. Not how slick Al is, or how much you think you can know, or we're going to put it in a marketing plan. No. No marketing plan, no strategy can take away your sins. Only Jesus can do that. And if the cross of Christ isn't enough to get your attention, And cause you to want to be transformed, then nothing else I can say will matter. No matter how much you like me, no matter how much you like my style and my personality, it's never about me. It's only about the cross. And however you get that information from whomever the messenger is. I saw this happen to dad. Obviously, dad's led a lot of people to Christ because he's been a consistent proclaimer. One day he came up to the gate out there, and somebody had built a little shrine there by the gate to him. And he said, Al, this ain't good. It ain't about Phil. He quit baptizing people. He lets Sistrunk and the other guys do it, because he says, you're not baptized into Phil. You're baptized into Christ. I mean, that literally happened to him. That's exactly what was going on here. And you can see the kind of problems that it can pretend for the church. He said in Hebrews twelve two, the Hebrew writer, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. Remember all that shame I talked about a minute ago? He took all that on him at the cross. And of course, that's enough. In chapter one, verse 18 through chapter two and three, he's going to give us the two things, the Corinthian church, but also to us. Really the two things, the two power cells, I call it, that allow us to be unified. And they're simple and yet they're very difficult to live out. The first one starts in verse 18 and it is quite simply the message of the cross. That's what brings salvation. The second thing he's going to talk about in chapter two, which I'll go into much more next week, is the wisdom of the Holy Spirit. That's about transformation. So we have two things at work here. We have the thing that can save you, the message of the cross of Jesus, and the thing that can transform you, the wisdom that comes from an indwelling Holy Spirit. That's going to be his point to the Corinthian church. If you got nothing else out of everything I said today. Get that. That's your power cells. And it's better to have both. Can a plane fly with one engine? They tell me, yes, I don't want to try it. Do you? It's like the old joke with the captain comes on. There's four engines. He said, I'm sorry, folks. One engine has gone out. We're going to be delayed about 20 minutes getting to our destination. Then he comes back on and says the second engine has gone out. We're going to be 45 minutes delayed. Then he comes on and says the third engine has gone out. It's going to be an hour and 15 minutes. Guy leans over to the guy next to him and says, if that fourth engine goes out, we're going to be up here all day. (laughs) Need to send that one to Trent. (laughs) I'm going to read this to you. and Then I'm going to wrap up for today because I've got a lot more to say about this next week. First Corinthians 118. The message of the cross. There's that first engine. That drives us is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent. I will frustrate. That was written in Isaiah 29. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Corinth was located very close to Athens, so I'm sure there were a lot of really smart intellectual people nearby. But he says, you know what? No matter how many letters are after your name, no matter how smart you are, if you don't understand the message of the cross, you're still lost. Your intelligence won't save you from sin. In fact, it'll help you rationalize it even more. You'll get to the point where the Greeks got where they said, you know what, our minds and our brains are so good and so great and so big, it doesn't matter what our bodies do. Until you died of syphilis at, you know, 30 in your sins. Maybe it did matter. You see, that's the message of the cross. I look around me today and I see... Our current culture and their wisdom. They can't forgive anybody. They're victims. They claim to be awake and woke, but they seem to be fast asleep. Cancel culture. You don't agree with me, you're out. Forever. That's the wisdom of our culture. I don't think it's very wise at all Do you. I would much rather live where I could forgive my brother or my sister. I'd much rather live instead of a victim as one who has victory because all things can be made new. Yeah, but we've had some stains in our history. Yeah, we all do. That's the power of the cross. We'll pick this up next week, but I just want to just bring it home to you today as an individual. Are you plugged in to the power source? Because you can't get to the spirit, which is the second engine, which is the thing that then helps transform your life. If you never embrace the first one, the message of the cross. And it may be because you're really, really smart. And so you look at it, and you think, well, you know, if I had a way to, you know, objectify this and have my scientific facts and have this, that, the other and all the things that line up and I'm just I'm so smart, I just can't see it. But what are you going to do to get your body out of the ground? Because that's where we all wind up. The smartest person in the world and the dumbest all wind up in the same hole. And so for us, it's what can we do to be different? And that's what the message of the cross is about. It provides the opportunity for transformation. And that was the message here. And so while the Jews wanted the signs and the Gentiles wanted the intellect, he says none of that matters without Jesus, who died for your sins, who was raised to show you can live again. And all these years later, 2000, we're still faced with the same questions, the same sin, the same people who think they know everything but don't. We have that opportunity today. Both to be saved and to be transformed. If you've never done that, if you've never called on the name of Jesus Christ, today is your day. Why don't you do that? Or if you have any other need, come while we stand and while we sing.